0: All right, well, good morning, everybody. I um, Hope you guys are doing well this morning. My name is Reggie, and um, normally when you would come here on a Sunday morning, you would probably expect to see uh, Jeremy Carr, uh, but Jeremy is on sabbatical for a couple of months, and so um, I'm filling in this morning, so congratulations for you guys. Um, so this morning we're going to be continuing in our series on Advent. Uh, looking at the second half of Matthew chapter two. Um, next Sunday we'll finish out uh, our sermon series on Advent, uh, and it will sort of culminate with our Wednesday night uh, Christmas um, service right before Christmas. And in January we're going to start a whole new series. Uh, but like I said, we're on our I think our fourth th- sermon uh, as a part of our admit, ad- Advent series this morning, called the True Tall Tale of Christmas. The true tall tale of Jesus. And so like I said, uh, in just a moment, we'll pick back up with uh, Matthew chapter 2 and uh, start looking at the second half of Matthew chapter 2. But before we get started, um, let me pray for us. God, thank you for the opportunity to be present this morning. Uh, God, thank you that during this season of our life, we have an opportunity to step back and reflect on the fact that you came to earth to be with your people. God, thank you that we have an opportunity To sit back and reflect and worship on the fact that you chose to come to earth for us. And God, I I pray as we look at your word in just a moment, as we look at some of the things uh, from Matthew chapter 2, that you would guide our minds and our hearts to the exact place where you would have us, that you would teach us what you would want us to know, that we would hear from you and from your word. God, I recognize as I stand up here on this stage that my words of are of little importance. They're of no worth at all, God, but your word and your words that you would speak to us this morning are of utmost importance. So God, I pray that you would move me out of the way and that Jesus would be lifted high and that you would draw people to yourself because of Jesus. I pray that you would use me simply as an instrument of your grace and mercy, an instrument of the gospel, an instrument of your love, that that you might be lifted high. That we might be drawn to you, that you might be glorified. And God, we ask all this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. As I said, our series that we've been going through over the last few weeks is the true tall tale of Christmas. The true tall tale. And here's what I want you to understand, that God is an author. The world is is His story, and we are His characters. This is a biblically faithful picture of God to say that God is the author. Scripture says of God in Genesis chapter 1 that God speaks the world into existence. In Hebrews 1, God's Word tells us that God upholds the world by the word of His power. Psalm 139 tells us that all the days ordained for us were written in a book before one of them came to be. God is an author. And so what do you call a being who stands completely outside and independent of his creation, yet causes every aspect of it to exist and allows it to exist? You call that person the creator. You call that person the author of life. If we were to talk about Narnia, we would say that C.S. Lewis is the author and creator of Narnia. It doesn't exist. The idea of Narnia doesn't exist apart from C.S. Lewis. If we talk about Star Wars, it doesn't exist without George Lucas. If we talk about Middle Earth, it doesn't exist without Tolkien. You get the picture, right? What do you call somebody who stands on the outside of his creation yet causes every aspect of it to exist and in fact whose creation can't exist without that individual? We call that person the creator, the author. God is the author, creator of everything. But the interesting thing about God and his story, what's so intriguing is that this author actually stepped into his creation as a character. On the one hand, he is transcendent and high and separate from us looking down upon his creation he's the alpha and omega relating to creation outside of time and history have you ever looked at an aerial view of the savannah river or maybe some other river have you ever looked at it from above or maybe looked at a map just a few weeks ago amy and i and the girls went out kayaking on the river um, and we were out way longer than we thought we would be and the wind was blowing and it was real difficult but that's beside the point Um, So we're out there kayaking and when you're on the river and you're sitting in a boat You're looking straight ahead and all you can see is what's right in front of you, right? You just it looks like you're going straight But if you were to take a look at the savannah river or some other river from above if you were to look at a map You would see hundreds and thousands of curves and twists and turns and things that you may not recognize while you're out there sitting on the river one author has said this If history is a great river, God views the entire sweep of it and all the twists and turns in one all-sufficing glance from his heavenly mountain. So, on the one hand, God is transcendent and high and outside of creation. He's the author and the creator of everything. But on the other hand, God enters into his story as a character. Walking with his creatures and engaging with them as fellow characters in the story. Not looking at the river from above, but moving down the river with his people. This is the God who, though unchanging, became flesh and dwelt among us. So not only is God the author and creator of the story, he's the main character. Which brings us to Christmas. And this is what the advent, the coming of Christ is all about. The author of the story becoming not just a character, but the main character, stepping into history to be the main character of everything. He is the bard and the hero at the same time. He gets to kill the dragon and rescue his bride. And our rescuer is not a detached observer who pulls puppet strings from afar, He's the creator that was born into our world, who bled, who died, who identifies with our sorrows by becoming the man of sorrows and who is acquainted with grief. We can't separate Jesus' birth for the reason why he came and we can't separate it from his grief and his death. Jesus is our Emmanuel, the God who was with us and the author who never did evil but instead conquered all evil by enduring the greatest evil and delivering all those enslaved and oppressed by evil who would put their faith and their trust and their hope in him god is an author he's the author of everything he's the creator but he stepped into history and became the main character turn with me if you will to Matthew chapter 2 verses 13 through 23 It's our main passage this morning. It's the second half of Matthew chapter 2. And it'll be up here on the screen and I'll read it as well. Matthew chapter 2, starting in verse 13. Now when they departed, when they had departed, and they being uh, the Magi, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child Judea in place of his father Herod he was afraid to go there and being warned in a dream he withdrew to the district of Galilee and he went and lived in a city called Nazareth that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled he shall be called a Nazarene so in this part of Matthew we learn just a couple of things that after the wise men the Magi came to visit Jesus um, Joseph and Mary had to flee to egypt to protect jesus's life we know um, we talked about this a little bit last week that herod the great was an incredibly paranoid person who uh, was known to uh, kill people from his own family to kill religious people and non-religious people alike herod was just paranoid and he wanted to keep power he didn't want anything to happen to um, the power based on what we know about the city of bethlehem Uh, at that time and place uh, when Herod sent to have all the male children under two years of age killed it probably would have been 20 to 30 people Um, so there's not any real historical record of this happening Um, but at the same time Herod was known for doing this and so even though it sounds awful the fact that he killed 20 to 30 people may not have been historically noteworthy because he was known to be violent and he was known to seek to keep power and to stay in control when he died. We know that his kingdom uh, His client kingdom uh, was divided up between four of his heirs and one of them uh, was over uh, Bethlehem where Mary and Joseph were trying to get back to at this point in time We see in this passage as well That God continues to direct Mary and Joseph in a supernatural way uh, to bring about the fulfillment of prophecies three times in this passage. It talks about how uh, prophecies from the Old Testament or things that were promised are fulfilled by what's happening um, in the life of Jesus and in the story going on around him. Uh, this, is a part of a Christ- this is the part of the Christmas story that we don't talk a lot about, right? Jesus had to flee to Egypt. Herod killed um, some children. And Mary and Joseph, when they came back, they didn't get to go where they wanted to go. They had to go somewhere else. Um, Here's what I want to do. I want to point out a few things in this passage that I believe the author of the story would have us to be reminded of. The author of the story ultimately being God, even though he didn't write Matthew. Matthew did. Um, But there are three very specific points that I want us to look at this morning and be reminded, I think, of what we should be reminded of uh, from this passage. We're not going to look at the whole thing. We're going to take a couple of verses uh, and pick them out and hopefully... um, hopefully hear what God would have us hear from this passage point number one is this though Um, as we look at God's word as we look at Matthew chapter 2 let us be reminded that Jesus came once to this world as a baby his second coming will be quite different Three times in this passage, we are reminded that the coming of Jesus and the things happening to Jesus and around Jesus are fulfillments of Old Testament passages, are fulfillments of Old Testament prophecies, including the fact that he had to flee to Egypt, including the fact that these babies, um, that that Herod sought the life of these children under the age of two. And even though um, the fulfillment of some of those things are terrible in the way that they came about, we're reminded that God's going to do exactly what he said he's going to do. The Old Testament prophesied um, that Jesus was coming, that he would be the Messiah, that God would be at work. And in this passage, we're reminded three times that God is faithful and that God is going to fulfill his promise and that he's going to act upon his plan to be the author who steps into the story to become the rescuer for us all. It's also a reminder that everything in Scripture points to Jesus, which we'll get to in a minute. But here's the deal. Just because Jesus enters the world, that doesn't mean that all evil and suffering exited the world when Jesus came in. That's going to happen one day. But at Jesus' first coming, evil and suffering still existed. If you look at chapter, I mean verse 16, it says, Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise man, became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise man. Just because Jesus entered the world first time, it didn't mean that evil and suffering exited the world when he entered. And in fact, Jesus ended up suffering the greatest evil that anybody ever could at his death. The first coming of Jesus reminds us that God is faithful and that he did what he said he would do. But that cannot be separated from the fact and from the understanding that Jesus will come again and he will make all things right and he will make all things new and the suffering and evil that still exist will end. God is faithful to do what he said he would do. He brought Jesus into the world, he brought the Messiah. But evil still exists. God won. Jesus won. On the cross, Jesus defeated Satan, sin, and death for all time. But we don't have the full uh, culmination of Jesus' victory yet. Advent reminds us that God did what he said he would do. Advent reminds us that God won, but we're waiting for the ultimate fulfillment of what God brought about. The story of Jesus, the story of the author stepping into history reminds us That in Jesus, God did what he said he would do. But it also reminds us that the story will one day end in a victory that we have not yet seen. There are two passages in the scripture that I would encourage you to look at in reference to this once we leave. I'm not going to read through both of them now, even though I'll read through one of them in a second. Revelation 19 and 2 Peter 3. Revelation 19 and 2 Peter 3 are both passages of scripture that are very clear about what it looks like when Jesus makes all things new when Jesus makes a new heaven and a new earth 2 Peter 3 reminds us that one day Jesus will refine and purify and redeem all things for himself under his rule and authority the return of Christ in the second advent will look very different than the first advent that we celebrate even today The incarnation is very different than the second coming, the incarnation being the the birth of Jesus as a child. Baby Jesus is tiny, wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. But when King Jesus shows up, it looks a lot different. Revelation chapter 19. If you want to turn there. Revelation chapter 19. Let me read you a couple of verses. Revelation versus, I mean, chapter 19, verses 11 through 16. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one thing on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. The armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. This might be the first time Revelation chapter 19 was ever used as part of a Christmas passage. (laughs) I don't know. In Revelation chapter 19, we have a picture of King Jesus showing up with a tattoo on his thigh and a sword riding in a horse in a robe dipped with blood. And that picture is about as far different from baby Jesus in a manger as you can possibly get. And yet the two of them are connected. Those two images are about as far apart as you can get. The majesty of God is somewhat veiled in the first advent because God takes on flesh and dwells among us. There will be no veiling of that majesty when Jesus makes all things new and makes a new heaven. And a new earth. Jesus will one day literally tear open the reality that you and I know and step into it. He will invade the universe in such a way that the full magnitude of His glory and majesty is known. 2 Peter 3 says, The fire of Jesus will come and refine the world. When 2 Peter talks about that, it's talking more about refinement, a, a burning away of what is wicked so that what's left is pure. Like if you were burning away impurities from gold and silver or some other precious metal That's what's coming The great and glorious day of the lord is about a melting away of all that is unrighteous The first advent Jesus is a baby in a manger the second advent We're going to see a drastically different picture of jesus And with that, Isaiah 35 tells us the desert shall bloom with roses. Isaiah 65 says there will be no more sounds of weeping heard on the earth, and the day of God's people shall be like the days of the trees. On the earth the lion and the lamb shall lie down together. And Isaiah 11 tells us no one will hurt or destroy anything in all of God's holy mountain, because evil and wickedness will be vanquished into the lake of fire. Habakkuk 2.14 says the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of God, like the waters cover the seas. That's what's coming at the second advent of Christ, a remade heaven and earth where there's no longer any sound of weeping, where there's no longer any death or disease. Jesus showed up once, and when he showed up, God did what he said he would do. God sent the Messiah that he promised. Everything in the Old Testament that pointed to Jesus was fulfilled when Jesus showed up. And Jesus will show up again one day as King Jesus, and it's going to look a lot different. For me, Christmas is a bittersweet time. I don't know about you guys. I've shared this with some of you guys in the past. Um, My father died on Christmas Eve in 1983 uh, when I was eight years old. Um, And so for a long time, that was sort of my uh, understanding of Christmas was it was connected to my father's um, death, and that's kind of weird, but but it happens. I have a friend at work whose grandmother passed away actually on Christmas Day, and so, um, and so you know when when terrible things like that happen, and they happen around big holidays, uh, you just sort of connect those things together. On the other side of that, both of my children were born right before Christmas, and I got married a couple of days before, after Christmas um, as well, and so. Um, This time of the year has been sort of redeemed in my life And that even though there was tragedy in the past There's also great joy um, with my wife and my kids But there are undoubtedly many of us in this room That experience heartache and hurt during the holidays More acutely than we do during any other time of the year There are undoubtedly many of us in this room right now Experiencing the heartache and the hurt of this world in ways that we can't even describe. I have a friend in the medical profession who says that suicide attempts um, just drastically increase during the holidays because we feel isolated, we feel alone, we feel pain, we feel disconnected. The truth of the matter is that we live and we do life in a broken world But the brokenness of this world reminds us that there will be a day when Jesus makes all things new and brings all those things to an end. And Jesus, God did what he said he would do. Jesus is the fulfillment. Jesus won. We haven't seen the full culmination, culmination of that victory yet, but we will. When we see loved ones or friends agonizing In disease or over hardships we're, We're reminded That there's a day coming When those things will be gone When we hear the weeping of friends and loved ones We're reminded There's a day coming Where weeping is going to end There's coming a day Where all that is broken becomes unbroken And we hold fast to that day Jesus came once to reveal himself to this world the author of the story stepped in as a baby with his majesty somewhat veiled and he experienced evil and wickedness even as a child having to flee to Egypt to avoid murder but Jesus is going to come again There will be a time when Jesus makes all things new and he'll finish what he started with the first advent. And in the meantime, we have hope. Christmas doesn't mean there's an immediate end to the darkness, but it does mean there's a light in the darkness. Christmas doesn't mean there is immediately an absence of darkness and violence and strife, but it does mean that the one who brings peace is present with his people. And we have hope. The first advent of Jesus gives us hope. We saw Jesus accomplish what God promised. We saw Jesus visit the earth. We saw Jesus live among his people and become Emmanuel, like Matthew chapter 1 tells us. And it gives us hope. And it gives us reason to expect that Jesus will come again. Jesus will make all things new. Point number two. Let us be reminded that God brings about the story that he's writing in ways that we often don't expect. God is the author, God is the creator, and he stepped into his story to accomplish exactly what he wanted to accomplish. And one day we'll see the full culmination of that victory. But let's be reminded that God brings about the story that he's writing in ways that we often don't expect or could not foresee. If you look at verses 22 and 23... It says this, But when he had heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled. He shall be called a Nazarene. When Mary and Joseph came back from Egypt, uh, where they had to flee to avoid Jesus' death at the hands of Herod, they went to Nazareth. Nazareth is not where you sent kings Who are going to rescue and deliver the world That's not where kings went Look at what one of Jesus' own disciples said about Nazareth In John chapter 1 I'll read it for you Philip found Nathanael and said to him We have found him of whom Moses and the law And also the prophets wrote Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph And Nathanael said to him Can anything good come out of Nazareth? And Philip said to him Come and see God works in unexpected ways. Nazareth was a backwoods place. Jesus is the most influential person ever in the history of the world and he went to Podunk, Mississippi. Every society has a desirable and exclusive and posh neighborhoods and places to live and Nazareth was not that. Nazareth was not Manhattan or Beverly Hills. Nazareth was was something different but God works in unexpected ways we see this over and over and over in the old testament and the new testament over and over and over God chooses Nazareth you may not be familiar with all of these stories I would encourage you to look them up if you don't but they can they, they all exist in scripture and you can look them up let me give you some examples of how God always chooses Nazareth In a time when the older sons got the most of everything, in a culture where the oldest sons received all the blessings of the father, God chose to work through the younger son, Abel, and not Cain. God chose to work through Jacob, not Esau. God chose to work through Isaac, not Ishmael. God chose to work through David and not his stronger older brothers. In the Old Testament, when God wants to bring a child into the world for special purposes, God always worked through women who weren't supposed to have children. Sarah, not Hagar. Rebecca, who was the wife of Isaac, who was was not able to have a child. The mother of Samson. Hannah, the mother of Samuel. Elizabeth, the mother of John the Baptist. Mary, a virgin. The mother of Jesus. God always chooses Nazareth. God works through the kid that was picked last for the team in P.E., God picks the kid that can't climb the rope in gym class. David wins and not Goliath. God works through the underdog. And who doesn't love a good underdog story, right? But I think it's actually much more than that. I think it's much deeper than that. The salvation that Jesus brings is unlike anything the world expected. We like to think that we can save ourselves. We like to think that we can pull ourselves up by our bootstraps. Virtually every religion in the world says that in some way. Do this or don't do this and you'll reach some enlightened state. Do all these things and follow all these rules and you'll be rewarded. In fact, in some ways, that's what Christianity in the South has become. Go to church, do these things, be good. Uh, Do more good things than bad things. And in the end, everything works out for you. But the salvation that Jesus brings, it's not based on our works. It's not based on our goodness. It's not based on our righteousness. It's a salvation that's freely offered by grace. God confounds the wisdom of this world and does things his own way. Jonathan Edwards, uh, a quote from Jonathan Edwards I'm reminded of When I think about this Jonathan Edwards said You contribute nothing to your salvation Except the sin that makes it necessary There is nothing There is nothing that we can do on our own behalf And that's the way that God has chosen to work The story that God is writing is a story that's not for the strong and the good. It's a story for the needy and the weak. Look at what Mary says in Luke chapter 1. This is when Mary, um, after Mary found out what God was doing through the birth of Christ. Look at what she says. I'll I'll read it for you and I think it will be on the screen too. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. Advent is the declaration of good news for the poor, the needy, the weak and the lonely, lowly. Not those who think they can do it themselves but for those of us that God has allowed to see that we are needy and weak and in need of a Savior. Jesus from Nazareth, not Rome, not Athens, not New York, not Jerusalem. Jesus from Nazareth, he changes everything. He changes all the categories. And he says, if you want to be strong, you must be weak if you want to be first you must be last the way of Jesus and the way that God works is like Philippians chapter 2 Philippians chapter 2 where it says this have this mind among yourselves which is yours in Christ Jesus who though he was in the form of God did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death even death on a cross. Advent reminds us that Jesus came once. God did what he said he would do. God fulfilled his promises. God came through. Jesus won. And one day we're going to see the ultimate fulfillment of what Jesus came to do when he makes all things new. Advent reminds us that God chooses to do things in ways that we don't expect. It's because the glory is for him and it's because God is the one that is acting on our behalf. Advent reminds us of that, that in the person of Jesus, God is acting on our behalf and he's doing things in ways that we would never expect. Who would think that a child born to a virgin in Bethlehem would be the most influential person Ever in the history of the world. And yet, exactly that's what God brought about. Point number three. It's the last point, and then I'm done. The author of this story is also the main character. The whole Bible is about Jesus and points to Jesus. The, the whole Old Testament is the story of God calling people to Himself because they're in need of a Savior. And the New Testament is the story of God doing what he said he would do and pointing us forward, looking for when Jesus will come and make all things new again. Verse 15 says this in Matthew chapter 1. There's a line in there. um, Let me just read it. Matthew chapter 2 verse 15. And remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. That is in reference to a passage in the Old Testament from the book of Hosea. It's a reference to um, the beginning of Hosea chapter 11. And uh, it's not really a prophecy at all in Hosea chapter 11. Hosea chapter 11 is a beautiful retelling of the story of God bringing his son Israel out of captivity in Egypt and delivering them to the promised land. That's what Hosea eleven's about. It's a retelling of that great story, um, but it's also um, retelling the story that even though God delivered His people Israel out of Egypt, they continued to do some really stupid things. Like, right, if you look through the Old Testament, what you see over and over and over and over is God. Promising his people um, that he will be their God. That he will take care of them. And calling them to obedience. And what we see over and over is God's people disobeying. Putting themselves in situations where they need to be rescued. And God sending a rescuer uh, to take care of them. It's a, it's a cycle over and over and over in the Old Testament. Where God says, obey me and I'll bless you. Disobey me and you're going to suffer the consequences. And they disobey And God rescues them. And it happens over and over and over. Hosea chapter 11 is a beautiful passage. And I would encourage you to go read it uh, when we're done. When you get home at some point today. But that's essentially what Hosea is. It's the story of God's people. It's the story of God pulling his people out of Israel. And their continued disobedience, even though God is calling them to obey. And lest we uh, think lowly of God's people in the Old Testament, we do the same thing, right? God calls us to obey. We disobey all the time, we mess up all the time. This morning on the way to church, um, we were riding down the road, and I don't know how we got on the subject. Um, but I'm going to tell you a story about Laurel because she wants me to tell you a story about her. And this is the greatest story I can think of at the moment. Uh, for whatever reason, we're talking about Adam and Eve. And I don't, I don't even know why. I can't tell you why. Uh, but the girls were talking about it. And Laurel said, if I was Eve, I would have gotten a, <laughs> I would have gotten a pie pan and I would have put that snake in the pie pan and I would have made a snake pie and then I would have killed him. <laughs> or something to that effect. It makes no sense. She's seven but it was pretty funny at the time. We, and the girls went on to talk about how if they were Eve or they were present in the garden with Adam and Eve, they wouldn't have made the mistake. Um, and I gently and nicely and lovingly like pointed out some mistakes they had made just like yesterday. Um, but that's okay. The, the whole story of the Old Testament is the story of God calling his people to obey And them sinning and God rescuing them and God calling them to obey and them sinning and God calling them to obey after he rescues them. It's a story that happens over and over and over. It's a cycle that happens in our own life. The world is a dark place because God calls the human race to obey him and we don't. We can't. It started with Adam and Eve and it continues throughout all of scripture. God calls people to obey him, and we can't. We constantly turn away. We're constantly waiting on God to rescue us. That's the human condition. We can't help but sin, and we can't save ourselves, and our only hope is Jesus. In this passage, when Jesus comes out of Egypt... He obeys his father Jesus becomes the true and better Israel Who doesn't turn away from God But turns to God Jesus becomes the only faithful son Jesus becomes a true and better Israel And who is obedient And who does everything God called him to do When God called the nation of Israel out of Egypt They could not obey They did not obey when God calls Jesus out of Egypt, when Jesus comes back to Israel, he obeys his father. He loves God above all else. He loves his neighbor so much that he dies in their place. He's obedient to death, even death, on a very horrible cross. The Gospels are the story of the only son to obey God to the fullest. And the only son to ever earn the blessing of the Father. Jesus got the curse for our disobedience so that we could get the blessing of his obedience. Israel couldn't obey God and neither can we but Jesus did. And so Advent reminds us that in Jesus's coming to earth as a baby He fulfilled what God promised. The Messiah came. The Messiah showed up. The Messiah won. And one day we're going to see the full fulfillment of Jesus' victory when he comes and redeems everything to himself. Advent reminds us that God works in ways that we don't understand. God chooses Nazareth. Not our wisdom. Not the wisdom of the world. His wisdom. And Advent reminds us that Jesus is the only son who ever fully obeyed, who ever received the blessing of God, and in turn took on our curse for our disobedience that we might get his blessing. You know, there are two ways that you can read the Bible. There's actually more ways that you can read the Bible, but there's two basic ways I think you can read the Bible. Um, A few... Well, anyway, two basic ways I think that most people go about reading the Bible. You can read the Bible that it's basically about you. And what that leads to is legalism and moralism and trying harder but never getting anywhere. Or you can understand that the story that God is writing is about Jesus. And he's the main character. And that leads us to the cross that leads us to the truth of the gospel this story is true the story of Jesus really happened and it's about Jesus it's not about us, it's about Jesus it's about God fulfilling what he promised through Jesus it's about Jesus being perfect on our behalf The story is about God working in ways that we could never possibly understand to fulfill and to provide us a rescuer that we might be rightly related to God. The story is about Jesus. The story is powerful. The story is true. The story matters because Jesus is at the center of it all. The story is true. It's the true tall tale of Jesus and it matters because it's about Jesus. And so... Um, my application for you this morning, my call to action this morning is the same as it's been throughout this entire series. I would ask you, are you believing this story? Are you believing this story? If you do, it's going to affect you. It's going to change you. It's going to change the way you understand what God has done and is doing. Are you believing the story? And if not, why not? What are the obstacles? Number two, are you sharing this story amongst your family, amongst your missional communities amongst those closest to you? Are you sharing this story with one another to encourage you and the truth of what God has done and acted on our behalf? And thirdly, let me ask you, are you telling this story um, to those who may not know it? How are you doing those things? Are you believing the story? Are you sharing this story? Are you telling this story? It's true. It matters. It has power because it's about Jesus. It's about Jesus winning. It's about... God fulfilling what he promised in Jesus And it's about God doing exactly what he said he would do We're going to enter into a time of response And I would encourage you to reflect on those truths Even now as we have some time um, When we close out our service uh, In just a second the band's going to come back here on stage And they're going to continue to um, lead us in some songs And give us the, the opportunity to worship through singing Um, if that's where you find yourself. Uh, Also during this time, I would invite you um, to reflect maybe upon the things that you've heard this morning or maybe whatever else it might be that God is speaking to us in this place to maybe sit and pray, um, stand and pray, go somewhere else and pray, whatever, but to reflect upon whatever it is that God is speaking to you even now. Uh, During this time, we have an opportunity to worship through giving. There's a giving basket in the back and if you're a part of... um, redemption church and uh, You want to continue your worship through giving the opportunity exists for you to do that And during this time as well um, We're going to enter into a time of communion. It's a time for us to uh, Remember what Christ has done and it's a time for us to proclaim to one another um, That we believe that God actually accomplished uh, What he said he would do that God actually did What he said he would do and so by taking communion we remember it and we proclaim um, To one another that we believe it This is what god's word said For I received from the lord what I also delivered to you that the lord jesus on the night when he was betrayed Took bread when he had given thanks. He broke it and said this is my body Which is for you do this in remembrance of me in the same way Also, he took the cup after supper saying this cup is the new covenant in my blood Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So, like I said, we'll celebrate communion. And in so doing, remember what Christ has done for us and proclaim to one another that we believe it. Uh, This is the way that we're going to invite you to do communion. And the reason we're doing this is to hopefully make the traffic um, up coming up here a little... um, makes sense. So, we would encourage you for everybody to make two lines and come down the middle aisle and then feed back out to the sides this way. Um and hopefully that'll just make the traffic flow well um during this time. So, I'm going to pray for us. Um and then we'll continue on with um with our time of response and worship. God, thank you for uh the reminder from your word this morning um that you showed up in history as a baby. And God, thank you for the reminder from your word that you're going to show up again, that you're going to make things new, and you're going to refine all things just as you promised. God, thank you for the reminder that you have acted on our behalf in ways that we may not even understand. God, thank you for the reminder that this story is true and matters because it's about you. And so God, even now as we continue to respond, as we continue to worship Um, I pray that you would continue to speak to our hearts and minds, that you would continue to draw us to yourself, that you would continue to lift Jesus high, that we might be drawn to him and we might be changed because of an encounter with him and him alone. And God, we ask all these things in the name of your son, Jesus, amen.